Hello, Rob Ross. Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing today? Good, buddy. How are you? Pretty good. So today is the um, 88th episode of The Rock Show, and today we are talking about Richard Hell. Richard Hell, yes. A uh, very important person on the New York Underground music scene back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, uh, you know, a great poet, author, literary guy. Uh, he basically gave up music to get into his poetry. All right, that's that's what happened later on. But he was always very interested in poetry, a big fan of Rimbaud, Arthur Rimbaud, the French poet. Uh, he had that with uh, he had that in common with Patti Smith, who was also a, a big fan of Rimbaud. Uh, kind of like a a lyrical genius, I see him. Yeah, he was also the guy that kind of inspired the uh, Sex Pistols, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, without Richard Hell and his, you know, fashion sense early on, there wouldn't have been the British punk scene the way, the way it went. Because he was the guy who wore spiky hair, okay? Mm-hmm. And he also would, you know, shred up, shred up his T-shirts and put them back together with safety pins. Uh, if you remember the book, Please Kill Me, okay, yeah. which is all about the New York underground scene in the 70s, that title, Please Kill Me, comes from a shirt that Richard Hell had where he wrote that on it. It said, Please Kill Me. Wow. Went on stage like that. And Malcolm McLaren, who in 74 was managing the New York Dolls, you know, saw Richard Hell perform on stage as television uh, in the band television. Yeah. You know, took that idea back to England and dressed the Sex Pistols up like that. So, you know, that's where that comes from. Wow. Yeah, very important. Uh, but he has a, you know, kind of a, a humble background. He's, he's from Kentucky. All right. Uh, he was born Richard Lester Myers, October 2nd, 1949. And he came from a mixed Jewish and Methodist background. His mother was Methodist. Uh, his father died when Richard was seven. Okay, so he was a young kid when his father passed away and he was raised by his mom. Uh, After his mom was widowed, she went back to school and she became a professor. Uh, He found himself living in Delaware. Okay, Uh, he was a very bright kid. Okay, but he had this kind of like rebellious streak through him. Uh, He was told his parents, you know, his mother was told that. he would be very smart, do very well academically, but he had this rebellious streak. He used to like to run away, okay, start trouble, you know, all kinds of shit. And, but he could write poetry, all right, uh, almost as quickly as he could get in trouble. <laughs> and, you know, and he was attending a private school called the Sanford School in Delaware. Uh, this was when he was a teenager. And he befriended another student named Tom Miller. Now, Tom Miller would later become Tom Verlaine of television. We'll get to all that after. Uh, But uh, in those days, he was just Tom Miller and Richard Hell was just Richard Myers. And they would be friends. Uh, When they were about 17 in 1966, uh, they decided to run away from, from the school and go to Florida to find girls in bikinis. (laughs) <laughs> that was their that was their idea, 
Okay, but they only made it as far as Alabama because they got arrested for setting a field on fire. Yeah, they destroyed the field. <laughs> <laughs> field. Yep. So I don't think they got in too much trouble, but they did get sent back home. Okay. And after a few months, Richard decided he's going to New York City to make a life for himself. And his plan was to become a poet. Uh, he dropped out of school to do it. And he took a bus to New York City all by himself. Uh, he would meet up with Miller later, but we'll get into that. Um, in the beginning, you know, and these were the days when you could do this. He worked as a stock boy in Macy's. Uh, he was living above an automat. Okay. For those who don't know, an automat was like, like a little cafe. Like you'd come in and, and, uh, they would, there would be like these little drawers, glass drawer, glass doors in front of these drawers that would pull out and you'd like get a sandwich and then, you know, kind of like the way Katz's does it at the deli. Yeah. Like, you know, like you get like a ticket and, and get what you want and you pay, pay on the way out. Uh, he lived above one of those and it was known for being very cheap. So I'm sure he spent a lot of time in the automat. Uh, <laughs> he, well, there was a there was a joke. I think I read this in a I think I read it in a William Burroughs book. Uh, people used to take like hot water. They just asked for hot water at the automat, which would be like nothing or a penny or something. And just put ketchup in it, make tomato soup. Damn, that's well, rough. Have, well, 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 hey, you know. And he even worked at the uh, the Strand Bookstore over on Broadway and 12th Street for a while to support himself. And he worked at another bookstore called the Gotham Bookmart. So, you know, his idea was he was going to be a poet. And I'm sure working in a bookstore helped. Um, he would start to, to, to make some headway. He self-published a small literary journal called Genesis Grasp with yeah. a young poet he had met named David Giannini. Uh, actually, he relocated from New York just for a few months to New Mexico uh, with this guy to do this, this literary journal. But the partnership didn't last too long. And in 1971, he was back in New York City. Uh, it was then that he started his own literary company called Dot Books. But by the time he was 21... Richard had his poetry published in numerous periodical, uh, periodicals uh, ranging from Rolling Stone magazine to the New Directions annuals. Uh, he had started using the name Richard Hell at that point, and he reconnected with his old friend Tom Miller, who had changed his name to Tom Verlaine, named after another famous poet. Uh, both began publishing poetry together, but under a pseudonym. It was one pseudonym that they used, even though it was two guys doing it. The name was Teresa Stern. And they managed to publish a book of poems under that pseudonym, even though they both wrote them, but they used the one name. Uh, that was in 1973 on Richard Hell's Dot Books. And the book was called Wanna Go Out? Question mark, Wanna Go Out? So this guy was pretty much doing his thing already, writing and getting book published and stuff. You know what's amazing, and I'm you know, it really kind of hit me when I was doing the research on hell. Uh, in those days, all you really needed was drive to do something. Okay, yeah. if you came to, if you came to New York City in the late '60s, early '70s, you could find a cheap place to live. Okay, you might rough it. You know, you might have mice in your apartment or roaches or something. Okay, but you could you you could make the rent. You you got a job and then if you 
you know, if you couldn't work at that job for some reason, there was another one right the next day. And this was the reason why so many bands and so, you know, artists and poets and people like that could really make it in New York City in those days. That's why there was a bustling underground. Okay. Uh, you know, you think about Andy Warhol and all that stuff going on at that time. And that was big. But that was kind of established already. I'm talking about people that were just coming in with dreams of being artists or musicians. And in those days, you really could do it. And it's 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 sad that, I mean, you know, never mind the pandemic and all that going on. But even if that wasn't happening, it's sad that you really can't have that anymore. You know, it, it, it's just if, if you're an artist and you're struggling to, to make rent, how are you supposed to concentrate on your art? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, but in those days, it's, you know, you could do that because you could go live on the Lower East Side or somewhere that was cheap. Some people lived in Brooklyn. I know Patti Smith uh, lived in Brooklyn at one point uh, when she was starting out. And, uh, you know, today, those same neighborhoods that these famous people started out in, they're almost as expensive as Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> or, or some, you know. Brooklyn is actually as parts of Brooklyn that is more expensive than Manhattan right now. So it's, you know, I'm reminiscing on these old days and, and, you know, it's great stuff, but it's sad in a way because you just, it just can't exist like that anymore. Yeah. But the reason people will move to the East village or places like this or New York, because it was, it was reasonable. Remember the East village was filled with musicians and artists, right? The rents were cheap. Now forget about it. Yeah, it's it's tough. But now, after they published that book under the pseudonym Teresa Stern, uh, Helen Verlaine would be working together at a bookstore called Cinemabilia. And Cinemabilia's manager was a guy named Terry Ork. And Terry's an important figure in the whole scene. He had a lot of connections to Andy Warhol and other kind of assorted members of the New York City music scene. So Ork encouraged Richard Hell and Verlaine to start a band together. Now, both of them were interested in music. Uh, they, I think Tom had done some playing back in Delaware. Uh, Richard really, I think, might have dabbled a little bit with some bass or guitar. But, you know, they were into, like, garage music, you know, like stuff like what Lenny Kay had put out in the Nugget set, stuff that you hear on Little Stevens Underground Garage these days on the radio, on satellite radio. Um, but Ork encouraged them to start a band and they, they thought it was a great idea. So they, they called it the neon boys. Yeah. And originally they were a three piece. They picked up uh, a drummer named Billy Ficker, who they were friends with. Uh, so it was hell on bass, Verlaine on guitar. Okay. Uh, they would both trade off vocals, um, and Billy Ficker on drums. Now this lineup would never play live. Okay, they they lasted, I think, close to, uh, excuse me, I think close to a year, but uh, they never played live. They did uh, record a little bit, and some stuff would come out like years later, uh, a song called Time, a song called Don't Die, uh, That's All I Know, and Love Comes in Spurts. Uh, That's a track that, and and Time is actually something that Richard L. would record later, but Love Comes in Spurts would be done in various forms through Richard's career in the, in the 70s. Uh, there was also a track called High Heeled Wheels that was recorded. 
Um, now, soon after forming this band, Ork, who was kind of managing them, would suggest Richard Lloyd as a second guitarist. Now, they agreed, but at that point they said, let's change our name. Let's stop with the Neon Boys. We're going to call ourselves Television. And everybody agreed on it. Kind of a cool name, at least for 1974. And uh, their first gig as Television would be March 2nd, 1974, at a place called the Townhouse Theater. Now, manager Terry Ork would pay a visit to Hilly Crystal on the Bowery. Uh, CBGB's was just starting, I think, for a short time. When Hilly got it, it was called Hilly's on the Bowery, and then he changed it quickly to the CBGB's, uh, Country Bluegrass Blues, and uh, what was the umfug? Other, other music for undernourished gormandizers. Right. Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, he paid, he, now, you know, this was a, it was a it was a shithole bar on Bowery and Bleecker. Nobody went down there. Nah. Uh, only the, the Hells Angels around the corner on Third Street used to hang out there. Um, you know, Bowery bums would wander in and out. Hilly had a dog that would shit all over the place. Uh, you know, and they didn't have any bands there yet. It was really just like a hangout, like a bar. It was and, great. Yeah, there was a pool table right in the fucking middle. I mean, it was, a, you know, the, the fucking perfect example of what, you know, what we know as a dive bar. Um, he would speak to Hilly, and he would convince him to actually have bands. It was Terry Ork who really kind of put that seed. Well, I think Hilly had thought of it, but really kind of encouraged Hilly yeah, to didn't do it. Yeah, but didn't the Ramones were already there? Didn't they play together with television? Not yet. This is a few months before. Okay. okay. Television was the first band to ever play CBGBs. Wow. Okay. Um, and in fact, they actually built the stage for, for Hilly. They actually built, there was no stage. They built that stage, which at the time, if you remember the CBs when you went in there, the, the, the stage was kind of like straight across in the back. Yeah. And actually, in the old days, in the beginning, it would be on the side. So you had it, you had it kind of like in that back area, but turned the other way. So the stage didn't face the front of the club. Wow. It faced, it faced the side. And Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine and Lloyd and, and, and Ficka, they built that stage for, for Hill. Wow. That little, that little stage. So um, they would play there. All right. They would do several gigs at CB's in the first half of 1974. Uh, Richard Hell, while playing bass, was known to jump around on stage and you know, he really didn't take his playing that seriously. He was an adequate bass player, but you know, I think for Lane and, and the other guys wanted to be soon once they formed, you know, wanted to be much more serious musicians than, than hell did. So they would kind of like, there would be this problem that would start where Hell would be jumping around, uh, fucking up his baseline sometimes, and they would get pissed at him. And it created wow. this friction with the other band members. Um, you know, they also did some gigs in the second half of 74 at Max's Kansas City. And then in January of 75, they would return back to CB's. And at that point, they really kind of had established a cult following. It was that whole year through 74 
of them playing Maxes and CBs and then the return to CBs. And it just really, this was the band, the hot New York City band to see at that point. Now, initially, television had songs written by both Tom Verlaine and Hell pretty much evenly. Yeah. Uh, one Richard Hell track called Blank Generation was a popular live attraction. People came to hear that song. Uh, you know, but because of this friction in the band, Verlaine sometimes refused to do the song. I think there was some like, you know, from what I gathered in Richard Hell's autobiography that I read, uh, I think Verlaine was jealous of him. Yeah, it was an ego thing. It was an ego thing. Yeah. And I think that that became a problem after a while. And, um, you know, he had this kind of like laissez-faire attitude about rock and roll, you know, not to take it too seriously. And Verlaine kind of took it seriously. He wanted to be a good guitar player. He wanted to be a good songwriter. And and there was an ego thing there, too. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't think I don't think Richard Hell really wanted to be a musician. He did it to, to do it. Yeah. And and he kind of says that, I think, in, in his autobiography, if I remember right. Uh, you know, it, being a poet and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, he wanted to write novels and all these things, that was his that was his dream. This was just something he was doing. Yeah. Okay. But, but he was talented. I mean, he it, it was, he, he, even though he, he says he didn't put much into it, maybe the band members didn't, but actually what he was doing was, was very different for the time. Okay. Uh, he would, you know, the, the clothes that he would wear, we, we mentioned before the tattered clothing held together by safety pins, uh, him writing, please kill me on his shirt. Uh, nobody did anything like that. And the song Blank Generation itself is, I mean, it's a classic song. You still hear it on jukeboxes all over the place in the Lower East Side. It's still, yeah. it's still always there. Uh, but blank, when you say blank generation, it, it, it meant fill in the blank. Okay. It was like they, it, the song was starting to define this, this era Okay, now the Ramones had started. Okay, Blondie was was about to start. Patti Smith was playing. Okay, she had she had already played CBs by '75. Um, in fact, her album would would come out that year, first album. Um, and there was a buzz, you know, in the New York underground, and it was actually spreading. The word was spreading across the country because in '75. Uh, Hilly Crystal would have like a festival of shows to highlight all these new bands that started because of television, because of the Ramones and Patti Smith. Okay. And he highlighted these bands and he got the music press involved. Rolling Stone came down. Cream was down there. Uh, and, and, and there was write-ups about these. So there was a buzz. And Richard was right in the middle of that. Richard Hell was, I mean, television were the pioneers of all that. Yeah, television had a very popular album, I think. It got a few songs. Well, yeah. Now, that album was not out yet. Okay, that yeah. album would not come out until 76, I believe, okay? Let me ask you, did he even play in that album? No. No, no. no he did, um, right? That's what I was you thinking. Know, yeah, right? I mean, now, now, now um, at the time, like I was saying, Malcolm McLaren... 
had seen all this stuff and brought everything to to England. You had this, you know, uh, flowering kind of punk scene in England at that point. And television, despite this kind of internal friction going on between the members, they were getting fantastic reviews in the press. And I got to mention, in case you wonder, uh, Richard Hell got his name from an Arthur Rimbaud titled poem called The Season in Hell. Okay, so that's how he got that. But, um, in fact, the very first band review of, of television was written by Patti Smith, okay, uh, in the Soho Weekly News in June of 74. And she raved about them, okay? She said, this is like the future, you know? But by May of 75, these internal frictions between Hell and the other band members led to Richard leaving the group. Okay, and he would be replaced by bassist Fred Smith and television would go on to make one of the most important albums of the 70s, Marky Moon. And the tracks, you know, it was a total breakup. They didn't do any of Hell's songs, I believe. Yeah. Okay? My, you know what's funny? I'm surprised we haven't done a show on television. Yeah, I mean, we could. We could. I mean, the, the two television albums in the 70s, are to me fantastic fantastic seminal albums that everybody should own uh they did reform i think it was in like the 90s or early 2000s it came out they came out with an album that wasn't as that good but disregard that but the two albums uh marky moon and adventure are both great uh richard hell's not on them but verlaine you know i'm not gonna I mean, he had a big ego, and him and Hell didn't get along. But I think he's he's kind of a genius in a way too. Yeah. I, the the guitar sounds that he was getting, uh, and and the way he sang and 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 the song topics and stuff, very very different. And shout out to Erin Shaco because she always plays the song Marky Moon when I'm in the in the bar. So she always <laughs> like that song. Um. Now, the same week that Richard Hell left television, Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan from the New York Dolls left Quit. the Dolls. Yeah. All right. Now, the Dolls kind of had been sputtering along for about a year. Malcolm McLaren was managing them for a while. He dressed them up in all red outfits, made them wear, made them wear red patent leather, and they had a big communist hammer and sickle flag behind them, and that shit did not fly. Okay, didn't fly. They hated it in New York and they hated it even more in Florida. And that's where everything had gone wrong for the band. And Thunders and Nolan had enough. So they left. Now, you have to mention, too, that they also left because both of them had serious dope habits and couldn't get what they needed down in Florida. They couldn't wait to get back to New York. (laughs) 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 They wanted to get lumped up, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, um, Hell himself at that point had gotten a, a very bad dope habit all right and he was hanging out with Didi ramon the two were kind of known to go score dope together on the lower east side uh ex-television bandmate richard lloyd had a heroin problem uh he would score with with hell in the in these you know rundown buildings and stuff like that that you hear you know you always heard about um it just kind of seems like fate that Richard Hell would start a band with Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan. Uh, yes. The stars kind of seemed to line up for this event. And Hell, who had 
great notoriety with television would team up with these two legitimate New York City rock stars in Nolan and Thunders. Both were known equally for their musicianship and their drug taking. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was epic stuff. But Hell brought his self-penned television songs like Blank Generation and Love Comes in Spurts to the newly formed Heartbreakers. Thunders had some newly written songs like Pirate Love, Going Steady, and I Want to Be Loved. Now, this three-piece of Richard Hell, Jerry Nolan, and Thunders would play just one gig before they added the second guitarist named Walter Lord. And how, um, how strange is that? Before he just passed away, before you even started writing them, before you even uh, gave me the thing, you put the this was under this. And how crazy is it that the guy passed away like last I week? know, I know. We're, we're, we're recording this, you know, this episode in, in uh, the end of August. And, and Walter, uh, a few days ago, just, just passed away and came out of nowhere. Nobody knew he was sick. He's going to be missed. I mean, he had a. 45-year career in New York City uh, with the Demons and then, and then the Heartbreakers and then the, the Waldos and various incarnations with Johnny Thunders playing. Um, Walter is, you know, a, a New York treasure. He was. And he's going to be missed, but the music always lives on. Right, Rob? Yeah, but how crazy is that you book? How long you gave me this list a while ago for this thing to happen? Then that name popping up. Come on, that's well, eerie. You know, you know it is eerie. And uh, but we've had this happen before. Okay, yeah. we've, we've we've scheduled shows and somebody either passed away or some event involving that band uh, happens around the same time we're recording it. Sometimes we'll, we'll record part part of a podcast and then a little, you know. It'll make itself known again in the next band that we're talking about. You know, it's crazy, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I think of it. I mean, there's some kind of magic happening with us. Sometimes, yeah. You know? <laughs> but now this kind of infancy period for the Heartbreakers wouldn't last long. Now a few gigs at CBGBs and Mothers, which was a club on 23rd Street. Yeah. Uh, some early demos would all that would exist from this lineup would help. Uh, unfortunately, too many kind of egos abounded again between Nolan Thunders and Hell. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of that's a lot of that's a lot of ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you know, I think Richard kind of thought it was his band, and Thunders thought it was his band, and you know, Jerry always was just partners with with Thunders. Law was, I'm sure, a neutral party. Um, you know, he was just happy to be there. Richard Hell always said that he didn't like doing Thunder's love songs. And I put love songs in quotes. He <laughs> thought they were corny. Okay, songs like <laughs> I Want to Be Loved or Going Steady. He just thought they were, like, stupid. You know, and he hated, and he hated doing them. So I don't know if he hated doing them because Thunder's wrote them and he didn't, or he really thought they were corny. I don't know. I but, just think I just think if he didn't write them, he didn't like them. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, again, that's just we're just guessing. But in early '76, Hell would quit the Heartbreakers, and he would be replaced by bassist Billy Rath. And the Heartbreakers the next year would have the Anarchy in the UK tour with the Sex Pistols and a full LP, the classic LAMF, under their belts already. So and they a whole would, lot they of would, drugs. How much drugs do you think these motherfuckers did? We would need like three episodes 
of, uh, of the rock show to talk about that. Okay. We are going to do, we are going to do a show on the heartbreakers at one point. Uh, hopefully we could maybe get a guest or something on that. Um, because they need to be talked about. And the fact that Walter just did pass away, you know, they're kind of like on the, the front line again in, in conversation. Also, uh, uh, Mike, I just got an email from Nina. She's be waiting around two o'clock. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. All right, just uh, hate to send, but uh, I just I just read my email because I got no, it because I sent her that thing. So good, we're on for good, two days. Good, 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 fantastic. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, now at this point, Richard wouldn't be resting on his laurels too long. He would start a band called Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Uh, what he did was he put an ad out after he left the Heartbreakers. I kind of love that name. Well, you know what a voidoid is? No, I have no idea what it is, but I love it. It's it's an Eastern European word for vampire. Ooh, voidoid. God yeah. damn it. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. In fact, I think, trying to remember, I'm pretty sure that in Bram Stoker's Dracula, there's a reference to voidoid, like like a gypsy says something. And uses the word voidoid for vampire. That's Ooh. probably where he got it from. Oh, I got to look that up then. Yeah, yeah. Don't quote me. I'm not 100% sure. But I, I know it means vampire. And I think it was in Dracula. But he would put this ad out in the Village Voice uh, looking for a guitarist. Ivan Julian would answer that. Okay. Uh, and Robert Quine was a friend of his. Uh, he used to work with at one of the bookstores. He played guitar. He joined yeah. up. And that kind of settled the... You know, the bass player and the two guitarists. Now, they would need to get a, uh, a drummer. And uh, they, they would end up with Mark Bell. Okay, Mark Bell was playing with Wayne County, probably one of the first, well, the first transgender rock star. Okay, mm. Wayne County. Could do a show on, on him, too. He's, yeah. now J- he's now Jane County, very inf- influential person. <laughs> um, now, Mark Bell, we all know, would become Marky Ramone a few years later. But but uh, yep. he, he um, joined up with the Voidoids. And um, basically, their, their, their musical influences, especially Hells, were Bob Dylan, the Stones, the Beatles, but also the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, okay, especially the Velvet Underground. Hells lyrics were definitely influenced by Lou Reed, no doubt, okay? Uh, Lou had changed rock lyrics right after that first Velvet Underground came out in 67 because he was singing about things that nobody was singing about. He was singing about heroin. He was singing about street shit like hookers and drug deals and things like that. Uh, Bizarre sexual uh, encounters, things that would be taboo to talk about in public. Uh, you might be able to get a book written with something like that. In fact, the, the, the Velvet Underground was actually named after a book, okay, about S&M, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, you know, this kind of stuff was, uh, Richard Hell was interested in, in, in kind of like maybe taking it to another level in music, okay? Now, Quine, Robert Quine, was a tremendous Velvet Underground fan as well. And he had made hours of bootleg recordings of the Velvet Underground in the late 60s. All right. He followed them around on tour. I actually have this CD box set. It's fantastic. It's called the Quine Tapes. 
the Quine tapes. And uh, they would be eventually released like maybe 20 years ago, something like that. And they're very well done bootleg cassette recordings, you know, remastered, transferred onto CD of these live shows that the Velvet Underground did in, I want to say, like 68, 69 across the country. Places like San Francisco. Uh, there's a few shows from there. I think also maybe St. Louis. I forget all the venues. But, you know, there, there isn't much documenting that. Okay. Uh, there's a Velvet Underground collection called 1969. It's a two-record set of, uh, of their stuff taken from different shows, Texas, San Francisco, a few places. But this, like, Robert Quine collection, if you're into the Velvet Underground at all, you, you have to hear this. Um, Hell's most well-known song still was Blank Generation. So he uh, recorded it with this new band, The Voidoids, as a 7-inch EP on Terry Ork's records. It was called Ork Records in 1976. Uh, the other tracks were You Gotta Lose and Another World. This was like a, a small EP on, on a 45 that they put out. The cover was a black and white photo of a bare-chested Richard Hell with his zipper kind of open on his pants. And the picture was, uh, you know, uh, across his chest. Uh, no, excuse me. The picture was, was taken by his ex-girlfriend photographer, Roberta Bailey. Um, the single was an underground hit. And basically on that alone, it led to Sire Records being interested in them and signing them to a record deal. So March 14th, 1977, the Voidoids began recording their debut album on Sire. Um, they got their producer, Richard Goddard, okay, to act as co-producer, as the band felt they would kind of be able to handle the producing. So Goddard yeah. was brought in to kind of help out. Uh, he would get a co-producing credit. And he was also a helpful songwriter to have around, to help around with arrangements and things like that. Uh, he had written the single, My Boyfriend's Back for the Angels in 1963. Yeah, and he also wrote "I Want Candy," okay, by the Strange Loves. He was a member of the Strange Loves, and "I Want Candy," of course, would be recorded many years later by the uh, Malcolm McLaren managed Bow Wow Wow. Okay, um, you, you know what's funny about that? He was surrounded by some very well, very well. Um, he would he would, Richard Hell was always surrounded by regular musicians, or he always had a very good supporting cast around him. He did. He did. That's that's a very good observation, Rob. He, um, uh, yeah. I mean, definitely the 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 television stuff, and he had good management in New yeah. York, I believe. Um, in the in the CBGB's movie, they have the, the Terry York character, and it's not a great movie, but you kind of get the impression that the guy was really behind television, and he was. I think he pushed them a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, he definitely had great musicians. Ivan Julian, uh, Richard Lloyd playing with him, Robert Quine. Uh, Robert Quine's a very interesting guy. Maybe we'll do a show on him, too. Uh, kind of like he, he, he ended up, he started off playing in the Voidoids. I think that was his first real gig. Um, but he would go on to play with Lou Reed after that, which was his hero, right? He followed him around in the Velvet Underground. So yeah. he had an interesting career, but he also died young. 
uh, suffered from drug addictions and things like that. Interesting story. Maybe we'll get into it one day, Rob, right? Yeah, we definitely should get into that. Sounds yeah, program. yeah. It's now, funny, I click on his name just now, and I was reading a little bit about him, and I was like, wow, this guy seems pretty fascinating. Yeah, and, and he was an interesting guitar player. His style, uh, even his, his, his fashion sense, the way he dressed. Uh, Richard Hell would dress him in the Voidoids, kind of give him a look with a sports coat and pants and a shredded T-shirt, but he had a beard. like He looked like an insurance salesman. <laughs> or something. That's, that's you know very I mean? funny. Yeah, it's just, if you look at the back of the the Blank Generation album, it's kind of like he doesn't quite fit in, but he does. You know, it's it's interesting. But now, after recording was done, hell of this album. Okay, uh, they had recorded it at Electric Lady Studios over on Eighth Street, and after it was done, hell was informed by Sire Records that the album release would be delayed until September of 77 because the label was changing its distributors. All right. Uh, no problem. So hell kind of what happened was he, while he was waiting for the, for the album to be released, he noticed he would be playing the, you know, the acetates or the recordings and he felt some things needed to be changed. Okay. So he asked Sire records if they could actually re-record the album while wow. they were, you know, instead of, putting out this recording let's do it over and then you'll be with your new distributor and we could put it right out and you know uh, hell was one of these guys that wasn't going to be in the studio for 10 years you know what i mean so sire agreed to this and they actually booked them at the plaza sound studios on the eighth floor of radio city music hall now they wow. re- they booked them for three weeks in late June and early July of 77. So they already had an album recorded, but now they're just going to re-record it at a different studio. And got to mention it as a side note, and I'm curious, I I would love to find out, or maybe one of our listeners might know, but Plaza Sound Studios is where the Ramones recorded their first album a year earlier. Wow. And I'm just wondering if maybe Hell liked the sound of that album so much that he wanted to record it there as well. I'm just kind of wondering, because I know he was friends with them and friends with Dee Dee and stuff like that, and I'm just kind of wondering out loud if that had anything to do with it. So, let me ask you a question. Did, um, did, uh, the only one that came out, did both uh, recordings come out or both from both different studios? Yep, I'm going to explain that right now, how that happened. The final LP would use the Plaza Sound recordings, except... For the songs Liars Beware, New Pleasure, and Another World. Those three tracks were the original Electric Lady Studio recordings, but the rest on the album, okay, would be from the new spot at Plaza Sound. They yeah, why did that happen? What? Do you know why that happened? It, it, I think Hell didn't like the sound of everything that was recorded on the Electric Lady Studios, okay? Uh, that version of the album, as far as I know, it's never been released as an official release, the Electric Lady album. I think Hell didn't like it, but wow. he ended up using three tracks from it because he liked those three tracks recorded in that studio. And then the other tracks, the remaining ones, were better sounding than what they had at Electric. They were better sounding at 
Plaza. Okay. Now, I found that, also, I found that uh, fascinating, you know. Yeah, that? yeah. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> I mean, it could, it could, it, it, maybe he's a bit of a perfectionist. I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. But I mean, there was a reason for it, and I'm sure it had to do with how it sounded. It okay? definitely, because, you know, yeah, and, he's... And, and what they did too, they, what, the one other difference between the two recordings is that in the final recording at Plaza, okay, they would record a uh, Creedence Clearwater revival song called Walking on the Water. Um, and the reason they added that, that wasn't originally going to be on the album, but wow. they added it because it had become kind of like part of their live set. They had just added it and they wanted to record it. People liked it. So they, it is a good version of the song. And if, if you ever hear it for years, I didn't even know that was a cover and, and it's not one of the well-known CCR songs, nah. but, but, but it is a good song and the original is good as well. Um, they had debuted that track on uh, on a show on April 14th, 1977, and it became a big hit in the set. So they said, let's put it on the album. Now, the final mixing of the debut Blank Generation album, okay, that's what it was going to be called, began on July 13th. Now, do you remember July 13th, 1977? July 13th, 1977. Remember what happened? Was that the blackout? Yep. They were in the middle of mixing. At Radio City, okay, uh, they had started mixing it, and shortly after 9 p.m., the blackout of 1977 began, and, wow. you know, all the looting, craziness was going on, rioting, and then they would have to leave, and it would delay the mixing until July 18th, when it would be completed in one day, basically. They just needed one day to do it. Um as an interesting side note, kind of to the album, uh, it has a, a very cool mix to it. Uh, Quine and Julian both played Fender Stratocaster guitars. So they had the same kind of guitars. Both, both these guys traded their lead solo work back and forth, depending on the song. So they didn't really, one guy wasn't always the lead, one guy wasn't always the rhythm. And that's something the Stones were doing too, okay, in the early 70s. Uh, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards would trade off lead and rhythm, okay, depending on the song. And it kind of worked between Julian and Quine very well. They had a good, you know, partnership on guitar. Um, but what they did, too, was, like, Mark Bell's drumming and Richard Hell's vocals and bass would be centered, okay, in the mix. So you'd get them in both speakers, all right? But Julian's and Quine's guitar would vary between left and right. Sometimes Julian was on the right. Sometimes he was on the left. Sometimes Quine was on the right. Sometimes he was on the left, depending on the song. So it's a very interesting mix when you listen to it, if you're into that. It is a very interesting mix. That's like when we did the car show, I never realized the car had two different singers. Oh, yeah. a (laughs) A lot of people don't know that even to this day. That everybody thinks it's Rick Ocasek. And there was, you know, they, they had other guys, you know, Ben Orr and everything too singing. Even with okay. these guys, to me, they sounded very similar. You think the cause and, and Richard Hell sound similar? No, I mean, Richard Hell and the other guy that sang with him, they sounded a little similar. What do you mean, Rob? No one else sang. I mean, with the guitar, the way they play. Oh, oh, you're talking about Quine? Oh, 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 yeah, I see what you're saying. Quine with, uh, with Ivan Julian. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't like, always tell. 
you, you, you can never tell who it's like, okay, what the fuck? But nah, with the car, the same thing. I mean, those guys were playing, but with the car, the singer, you can never tell which one it was. And these they guys sounded very similar. Yeah, everybody sounded similar. There's a lot of time you hear guys switching stuff, and you like you can't tell because the music yeah. still sounds good, sounds yeah. same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now lyrically, the album does kind of like what Lou Reed had been doing for years, bringing a sense of the streets to rock and roll. Yeah, and Hell was very influenced by Lou's lyrics, but. He also wanted to define what this new generation or punk generation was. Yeah. And that's kind of like what I was saying before. The song Blank Generation, it stood the test of time. But the idea of a blank before the word generation was like fill it in for yourself mentality. All right. Yeah. It's like that's what punk was in New York City. It could be anything it wanted to be. All right. And, and, and you know. The CBGB scene, all the bands sounded different, okay? You know, you didn't have really a clone of each other the way some of the British bands were. Um, now, the the song would clearly influence the more kind of nihilistic UK punk scene. Um, you know, you have the song Black Generation, and then the Sex Pistols would have a song called Pretty Vacant. Okay, Blank, Vacant, you know, they got the idea. And then there was Generation X. Yeah. Okay. And they recorded the song called Your Generation. So the, the word generation and stuff was making its way across the pond. And then, of course, you had the look. Hell's look was influencing everybody over there. Yeah. But now, he also, man, that, that band, they had a lot of members, man. Yes, they did. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, that, that original core lineup would last for this one album. Okay, but he would have other guys play with him after that. We'll get into that shortly. It's it's amazing when you look at how many people play. I was like, motherfucker, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now one one uh track that I gotta mention about uh is a song called The Plan. And it's on side two of Blank Generation. I think it's the second to last song on that side. <laughs> if you listen to the words of this song, okay, I mean it's a thinly disguised description of a plan to impregnate a girl to make the female offspring the man's new lover. <laughs> okay, so basically it's, 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 the song is almost like a late 50s, early 60s type love song in the beat and the rhythm, but it's got some fucked up lyrics that only hell could write, you know what I'm saying? And, and you know, maybe Lou Reed could have wrote it or maybe one of the, yeah. the beat, beat writers like William Burroughs. But he's just at one point he's saying he's telling the girl, his old girlfriend, about a plan. And she agrees to the plan and she gets impregnated and then has a daughter. And then a couple of lines later in the song, like, my daughter is now my lover. Oof. Yeah. Like, I don't know what the fuck he was doing with that. man. But all right. Uh, <laughs> the cover of the original album features a shirtless Richard Hell in black jeans with the phrase you make me and like three dots okay written across his chest and the back cover was the band in tattered t-shirts and Richard Hell with his spiky hairdo that he kind of credits to photos of poet Arthur Rimbaud if you look up pictures of Arthur Rimbaud he kind of had spiky hair he looked like it I don't know how he did his hair like that but that was in the 1800s yeah uh, over the next five years, Richard got deeper into heroin addiction, unfortunately. And 
the lineup for the Voidoids would change. Uh, Mark Bell left in 78 to join the Ramones, and he would forever be known as Marky Ramone. After yep. that. Now, Ivan Julian would also leave the band, making Robert Quine the only constant. Okay, uh, In 1982, Richard would go back into the studios again to record the second and final Voidoids album called Destiny Street. The lineup would be Richard Hell on bass and singing vocals, Robert Quine on guitar. Uh, they got a guy named Juan Maciel, also known as No, on guitar, and Fred Mayer on drums. Mayer would go on to produce albums and play drums with Lou Reed. Uh, he would collaborate with Robert Quine a little while later after that, this album. And uh, he would also be a Sessions drummer. He still plays today, okay? Uh, he played with Lou Reed for a long time. Uh, he was about 18 when he joined this, this version of the Voidoids. The album would be recorded for ex-New York Dolls manager Marty Thau's label called Red Star Records. Um, he did have some really strong tracks on this album. There was a song called The Kid with the Replaceable Head, uh, Downtown at Dawn, Destiny Street, the title track. Um, there was some good covers on it. Uh, there was the Ray Davies cover, You Gotta Move, uh, the Bob Dylan cover, Going, Going, Gone, and the famous I Can Only Give You Everything, which was written by Phil Coulter and Tommy Scott and made famous by the Trogs and Van Morrison's Them. Yep. Now, this album was very well received, but it was kind of like a little too little too late. Okay. Now, critic Robert Criscow said it was a great follow up to Blank Generation, but the album sold poorly because punk by 82 had changed and it was kind of waning at that point uh new wave was bigger yeah um, and it was at this point that hell kind of said he was going to give up on music and concentrate on his writing but mike didn't that take kind of long to write the album like think about that that gap from 1977 to 1982 and there were people pumping up albums like yeah. Once a year. Think about well, that time. That was a very tough time for Richard Hell. He, his, his heroin habit was out of control. Okay. Uh, I think it took him a long time to, to really get that in control. Because um, if they would have taken that album like a year after, they probably would have still been in the main. Like they would have been, yeah. been a hit. Like it would have sounded great. It would have been, been a giant they hit. Were one, Richard Hell, that Blank Generation album, was one of the best reviewed punk records from the punk era okay everybody loved it in the in the main you know mainstream people enjoyed it okay where maybe they couldn't get into the ramones they kind of got into what or the dead boys they couldn't get into they they you know guys were guys were giving good reviews to television and richard hell okay uh that kind of made them standouts but you're right had they had they been able to pump out another album or a year or two at the most later they might have had totally different you know situation there all right but you know i mean things happen i mean mark bell was was gonna leave to join the ramones because the voidoids were were falling apart you yeah. know and, and i'm not you know i mean when, you know when, when you when your lead singer and songwriter has a bad drug habit it's hard to stay in a band right yeah, it is. You know, now between 1978 and 1998, Richard Hell would appear in nine films, uh, most notably the punk period pieces Final Reward 
1978 and Blank Generation in 1980 yep. and a movie called Smithereens in 1982. Uh, Blank Generation and Smithereens are, are interesting films. I've never actually seen Final Reward, but uh, this, the Smithereens movie is, is interesting. He even had a role in Desperately Seeking Susan. I'm not sure if you remember this, but Madonna's dead boyfriend in the beginning. Yeah, that was him. That's Richard Hell. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he's dead. He doesn't have a speaking part, but he's. I kind of remember that. Yeah. 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 Now, through the 1980s, Hell would continue with his like literary endeavors, working on poetry. Uh, he came out with something called I Was a Spiral on the Floor. Uh, it was a short collection of early poetry released in 88. Uh, another one called Across the Years in 1992. Now, hey, Mike, what can you tell me about this um, fun hunt live at the CBGB's and, um, and Max's? Fun Hunt. I believe that was... A live album. Yeah, a live album, but it wasn't just Hell. It was a, it was other I, people. I think it was a bunch of... It was a compilation album. Yeah, yeah. It was a compilation record. You know, the, the, the remaining part of, of like the 80s and, and 90s of Richard Hell's career would be like a lot of compilations, a lot of anthologies, uh, Raw Records, uh, Reach Out International Records, ROIR, would come out with something called R.I.P., Rest in Peace, Richard Hell. And it was a bunch of like outtakes and and different. Uh, I think there was some live tracks and some different versions of songs from like both the studio albums and uh, demos and stuff. And you know it's very interesting. But he was really concentrating on his writing. Uh, but in 1991, he would briefly get back into music when he formed a band called Dim Stars with Thurston Moore and Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth. All right. Also, uh, Gumball's guitarist, Don Fleming, would be part of that band, and Robert Quine would be brilliant. Yeah. Now, Hell wrote the lyrics and sang lead, uh, as well as played bass in this band. Uh, they had a self-titled EP just called Dim Stars and a self-titled full album that came out in 92 called Dim Stars. Uh, they never toured. It was just a very brief thing. They played one gig at the Ritz in Manhattan at the FMU Benefit Show. Okay, WFMU is a radio station out of yeah. Jersey that does all like different kinds of music depending on the DJ you're listening to. Uh, great station. I still listen to them. Uh, 1993, Richard actually plays on the album Roller Coaster by Shotgun Rationale. He also co-wrote and sang... Nevermind, a 1996 collaborative effort of three members of the Talking Heads, just called The Heads. It was everybody but David Byrne, okay? So it's kind of like Hell was playing David Byrne's part with the rest of the Talking Heads. Yeah. Um, the short novel that he was writing called The Voidoid, uh, that he got the name of the band from, okay, was finally published in 1993. Uh, a publisher called Code X put it out. And in 1996, his first full-length novel, Go Now, came out. All right. Uh, in recent years, Rob, most all of Hell's literary works have been like anthologies, okay? In other words, like compilations of his poetry, compilations of his short stories, compilations of his song lyrics, things like that. Okay. Um, and the NYU's Fails Library in 2003 actually purchased from Richard 
all of his manuscripts, tapes, correspondence, letters, or even emails, okay? Wow. And, uh, and other documents of his life for $50,000. Okay? I found that figure kind of low, but okay. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know why. Um, 50000 Yeah. Now, they actually, like, you know, it's in their library. They have basically everything Richard Hell ever did, okay, uh, in the original writings, in his handwriting or typing or whatever he did, you know. Um, students from the Montessori High School in Lexington, Kentucky, which, if you remember, was his hometown. In 2019, they completed a three-part mural of Richard Hell, and it featured two profile pics of him, and the third was a quote from his 2013 autobiography, which I recommend to everybody to read, uh, called I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. <laughs> All right. Uh, the quote is from the book that they featured in the mural uh, was, was this right here. It says, this was in Lexington, Kentucky, when everybody was a kid. I looked for caves and birds and ran away from home. My favorite thing to do was run away. The words, let's run away, still sounds magical to me. And that's what it was. You know, when he was a kid, he used to run away all the time. So that, that, that part made his autobiography. I thought that was cool. I think it's a great book. I read it when it came out. Uh, hell, if you're interested, read that book. If you're interested in him, uh, that is kind of like, I guess, the Bible on his life. There really isn't much written about him. There aren't nah. like, you know, there aren't many uh, books about Richard Hell and the Voidoids, unfortunately. They are mentioned all the time in the New York underground scene from the 70s. Uh, Please Kill Me is another great book, if you're interested, written by Legs McNeil. Uh, he, that's done almost like an interview, the way the, the, the book, uh, the format of Please Kill Me. It's like everybody contributes either with an interview or like a story about what happened in those days. And, uh, if you're interested in Richard Hell and the Voidoids, definitely read those two books. Um, Let me ask you another question. What do you know about this um, Gone to Hell, the 2008 Vinyl Japan? Gone to Hell. Is that another compilation? It's a live album. Live, yeah, I think it's a compilation of live stuff from before. Okay. Before. Yeah, like he hasn't played in a long time. Yeah, I know. I, I haven't heard anything. I can see that thing in Japan, like him and that music going to Japan, and those fucking people will go absolutely ape shit. Yeah, yeah, I mean they love everything American. <laughs> so you, know, you can. How many bands have we talked about that got big in Japan? Yeah, you know which one was was it Cheap Trick one? That Cheap Trick. Yep, yep. The Runaways. Runaway. Yeah. So that's all I got for you today, Mister Rossi, Richard Helm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what the guy for a guy that had like such a two iconic album and such a um, such a like his career was short. Yeah, I mean if you think about it, from seventy three seventy four was when they started playing music with you know him and yeah. Lane through the live shows, which I mean I think it's kind of hard to to understand today in 2020 how important these live shows were okay i mean it, it 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 you know this was the days before the internet yeah and you know he kind of made his bones as a live act before he recorded the blank generation album and then unfortunately you know he 
got involved with drugs and you know he goes into that a lot in his autobiography uh, yeah that's crazy pretty, that goes he's pretty candid he lost he lost quite a few years of his life because of it but, yeah you know it's that's a sad thing but he still managed to have a, a great career in music and he's well respected and literary uh, in the literary world he's very well respected um, I have a few of his you know little short story books and things like that he he's very <laughs> very you know he he writes very plainly you know he doesn't use like you know it's almost like simple words okay he's not like using big words that you don't understand what he's saying but just short stories they all have a great point or something it's very interesting writing you know i i like his writing that kind of writing is always good with with his short story that they got some kind of weird lesson that's always fascinating right right okay so that's it for us today. Where can we find you, Mr. Rodney? So you can find me anywhere on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, anything lumped up, associated with getting lumped up, you pretty much uh, can find me there. And uh, Mike, so um, next week uh, we're doing Generation X, and for the people that don't know, we're finally going to be doing some video. Yeah, it's been a while since we've done you know, video on a, on a consistent basis. We're going to do that again. We're going to be using the stream yard, which is kind of like zoom. Uh, and it's going to be great. We're back on, you know, you can look at our ugly faces again. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, what can I find you? Uh, Facebook under my real name, Michael Baker. Uh, also on Facebook, we have the rock show podcast group page. Please look that up and join uh, lots of stuff every day about the show and, Different things about different bands every day. Um, Instagram, RockerMike212. You can find me on Twitter, RockerMike3. Sounds good, Mike. Sounds yep. good. Yep. So um, to people out there, remember, don't get, don't get drunk, drunk. Get, get lumped, lumped up. up. See Take you next people. week. Bye.